can sit back and not bother to evangelize or does an emphasis, let's want to kind of tease this out for a minute for what we're going to talk about today, does an emphasis on the importance and necessity of evangelism imply that God is not sovereign at all? That's kind of the question that we're going to take on today. If God is sovereign, then why evangelism? If God determines, thank you, there's a great book on the book nook the lovely Rodney has that. <laughs> it's uh, J.I. Packer, if, uh, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. It's a short little book, so worth your while getting. So that's on the book note. Uh, I've had people tell me that all the time, and I've, this has probably been the number one um, argument against the sovereignty of God. Well, if you believe that God is sovereign, then you must not believe that you ought to evangelize or you can't be an evangelist, which of course, nothing could be further from the truth. The greatest evangelists that the church have ever known have believed these doctrines. So what I want to do today is I have four or five headings that I want to bring to your attention as we try to answer this question And uh, we'll see where we go. The first part, the first heading that I want to bring to you is this. All Christians believe in divine sovereignty. It's not a question of whether or not God is sovereign. Because if you are a Christian, you believe in the sovereignty of God. In his book, in that book that I mentioned, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, J.I. Packer said this. I do not intend to spend any time at all proving to you the general truth that God is sovereign in his world. There is no need, for I know that if you are a Christian, you already believe this. How do I know that? Because I know that if you are a Christian, you pray. And the recognition of God's sovereignty is the basis of your prayers. The essence of Christianity, friends is joyful submission to God. That's the essence of Christianity. It's what it means to be a Christian. Joyfully submitting to the Creator, God, and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as empowered by the Holy Spirit. And this joyful submission always flows out of a recognition of and response to the sovereignty of God. In other words, to be a Christian is to believe that God is sovereign. To be a Christian is to believe that God is sovereign. Again, let me quote Packer. He says, how then do you pray? Do you ask God for your daily bread? Do you thank God for your conversion? Do you pray for the conversion of others? If the answer is no, I can only say that I do not think that you are born again. But if the answer is yes, well, that proves that whatever side you may have taken in debates on this question in the past, in your heart, you believe in the sovereignty of God no less firmly than anyone else. And then this statement I love. On our feet, we may have arguments about it. But on our knees, we all agree. God has revealed himself to us in the Bible. And we've tried to spend this summer exploring uh, God's revelation of himself when it comes to divine sovereignty. In the Bible, he unequivocally declares that he is the king. He unequivocally declares that he is sovereign. The biblical doctrine of divine sovereignty declares that God rules and reigns over all creation. He constantly rules in every aspect of life. You just think about what the Bible says. He rules over the elements of nature and seasons and weather. We see that in Genesis 8.22 or Psalm 135.7. God rules over natural disasters. We talked about that a number of weeks ago in Psalm uh, 29. He is sovereign over the path of animals and nature. This is just what the Bible teaches. He rules over the decisions and footsteps of man. Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in the mind of man, excuse me, of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. God does whatever he pleases. He is sovereign in determining the length of every man's life. Acts 17.26. 
God is so mighty that he rules over those things that many consider to be random or up to chance or, or acts of nature. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. God is the ruler of nations. He is the ruler of human leaders. Daniel chapter 4, he rules and reigns even over the evil activities of man and, and in judgments and in his destruction. Genesis 50 verse 20. God is sovereign over the will of man. God is sovereign over salvation and repentance, the salvation and repentance of man. So we respond just like the Bible responds. First Chronicles 29, yours, O Lord, is the greatness the power and the glory, the victory and the majesty for all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. And you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you and you reign over all. In your hand is power and might and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Or Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's. And all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. Or Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God. I will be, not maybe, I will be exalted among the nations. Or Psalm 47.7, God is the king of all the earth. Or Psalm 99.1, the Lord reigns. And because of time, we'll just stop there, but you get the picture. To be a Christian is to believe that God is in control. That He is actually, that, that the word omnipotent actually means something. That He is all-powerful. He is the ruler of the universe. He reigns everywhere and all the time. There is no one or nothing greater than our God. There is no place in the universe where God is not in full control of all things at all times. God is never diluted to say he is somewhat ruling or he is mostly king. There's nothing that is too difficult for God. One theologian says this, God has a purpose in all that he does in the world and he providentially governs and directs all things in order that they accomplish his purposes. Everything, 1 Corinthians 15, 27, everything has been put in subjection to him. God does not consult anyone. He doesn't seek permission. He doesn't ask for permission to act. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through, the, through 11. And friends, this is the cornerstone of all that we believe about God. We believe that God is love, right? And that because we believe that God is love, we believe that His love is not compromised by situations or circumstances. The psalmist would say it this way, your mercy endures what? Forever. We see that Psalm 106, 7, 117, 136. This is the ultimate affirmation that God is sovereign. His mercy is a sovereign mercy and not somehow dependent on the will of and whim of man. Now, if God were not sovereign, if he were not the sovereign ruler over all people and all things and events, the only affirmation that the psalmist would be able to make is this. His mercy may endure forever, but it may not. But that's not what we read. Arthur Pink said this is the foundation of Christian theology, the center of gravity in the system of Christian truth, the sun around which all lesser orbs are grouped. The, the doctrine of God's sovereignty that all Christians believe just says that God is omnipotent, that, that He is furthermore the one who preserves all of creation. Again, Wayne Grudem said this, God keeps all created things existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. Or Paul said it this way in Colossians 1.17, he is before all things and in him all things consist. The writer of Hebrews wrote, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. We're talking here about divine preservation. 
all things continue in their created order because God sustains them. Everything that is holds together in Christ. He is the one who keeps the law of gravity in check. He holds atoms together. He keeps birds flying in the air and stops the caterpillar from floating off into space. He keeps the earth in its orbit, the exact orbit that is necessary for life. He is the one who holds the sun in its place and keeps it burning at just the right temperature. He holds the moon in its place and keeps the oceans from swallowing up the land. All things consist in him, not most things. Furthermore, if he should set his heart on it, if he should gather to himself his spirit and his breath, the Bible says all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. So whatever you think about divine sovereignty, you have to understand that God is God. You have to understand that he is sovereign. You have, that is the essence of what it means to believe God, to trust Him. Everyone believes in divine sovereignty. Second thing I want to say is, and, everyone believes in divine sovereignty, and that really is our only hope for success in evangelism. It's our only hope for success in evangelism, I want you to turn with me to John chapter 6 this morning. John chapter 6. I think probably the longest chapter in the book of John. And it's this chapter in which Jesus says a lot of hard things. And so many hard things that many of those who were following him decided to turn away from him. And follow him no longer. We're saying that divine sovereignty is our only hope for success in evangelism. Let me make this side note. As much as we can make a biblical defense for a rigorous belief in the sovereignty of God, we can make an equally rigorous biblical defense for our call to evangelize, our call to spread the gospel. In John chapter 6, verse 41, we begin reading. The Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one, verse 44, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Then down to verse 60. I'm sorry, well, yeah, verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. (laughs) The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe. And who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. We believe in the doctrine of divine sovereignty and understand that that is the only, that that a robust understanding of divine sovereignty is our only success in evangelism. Why? Because men are, are spiritually dead without the ability to please God, right? And, and, and men are not mostly dead. This is, this is not, you are mostly dead. It's, it is spiritually dead, morally incapable, morally unwilling, spiritually incapable 
of, of pleasing God in and of themselves. It, and it's, it, the only way to please God is by faith. And we cannot please God. Jesus says, no man can come to me. And that's the language of ability. No one, verse 44, can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. He explains what he means a little bit later as we read in verse 65. That's why I'm saying unless it is granted to him by the Father. Why? Because all men are spiritually dead. The the success to, the secret of our evangelism is not in our ability, our, our persuasive ability. It's not hold up in my, uh, my ingenuity to, to craft an argument, to make it so clear that everyone would have to believe. If that were the case, every time I were evan- evangelizing and someone did not believe, I, like I heard James Boyce say one time, if that were the case and every time I preached the gospel and someone didn't believe, I would go and jump off of a bridge. Because that means I did something wrong. And if I would have only more persuasive and only had the ability to to convince the mind. On the other hand, if someone believes when I preach the gospel, man, I would puff up my chest because look at how valuable I am to the kingdom. All men are spiritually dead, unable, morally incapable of pleasing God. They do not have the ability outside of an outside action by the Father on their heart. That's really, unconditional election is the only hope of sinners they have to be saved. The unconditional election is the only hope of of sinners for any kind of spiritual life whatsoever. Ever. That's our hope in evangelism. We believe in the sovereignty of God. We have to, because that's what the Bible says. You have to have some understanding, some perception of divine sovereignty. And we say, because that's the only way that there will be any success in evangelism. The only way that anybody ever believes is when it is granted to them by the Father. Peter is there in Caesarea Philippi. Jesus is amongst his disciples in a world that is saturated with entertainment and so filled with self right there in Caesarea Philippi. Not only that, but he's amongst the, the, all of the gods there in Caesarea Philippi where there were, in fact, sort of the, the, the existence, the place of pantheism amongst all these other gods. And Jesus says, who do men say that I am? And some say, well, some believe in reincarnation. They think you're John the Baptist, returned from the dead. Others are kind of religious. They're Jewish religionists, and they, they believe maybe you're the, the forerunner to the Messiah, probably Elijah or something like that. And then, Peter say, and then Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And right there in the midst of all of that godlessness, Peter blurts out, You are the Christ, the Son of God, to which Jesus says, wow, Peter, that's awesome. Way to go. Good job. You've got it all right. Let me pat you on the back. No. What does he say? Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. This is a work of God. We believe in divine sovereignty as our only hope for success in evangelism. It's God who opens the heart, just like he did with Lydia in, in Acts 16. God had opened her heart to hear the word, and, and God brought forth a church. It's amazing what God does when you think about it. Well, then the question comes up this, and maybe, maybe some of you have this question. Why then, all right, you're telling me why some do believe because it's a work of God. But what is the question? Why do some 
not believe. Why do some not believe? When is grace really irresistible? Why do some not believe? Let's answer that question by asking another one. Ask yourself the question, why do I believe? What has happened in my heart that has caused me to believe while others do not? Is it something in me? My ingenuity, my knowledge, my superior understanding, my, my placement in life? Is it because of something that I have done? Look with me at Ephesians chapter 2 for a moment. And then we're going to try to chase, trace a few scriptures. Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is talking to the Ephesian believers and he's causing them to revisit their testimony. He's causing them to look back on what happened in their lives to draw them to himself. He begins with verse 1, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and in mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So this is a clear uh, reflection on their testimony. This is who they were, dead in trespasses and sin. Then verse 4, but God. Isn't it interesting? He does not say, but you. You were dead in your trespasses and sin, but you came to your senses. But you, whatever. It's not you at all, but God being rich in his mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, what did he do? He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. Why? Because you are his workmanship. You are his project created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We know that salvation is the work of God, don't we? None of us would say in the final analysis, I'm saved because of me. I think we would all say in the final analysis, I am saved in spite of me. It's not my work. I couldn't do it. This is the work of God. With this in mind, let me take you to a couple of passages in Scripture. First, Exodus chapter 4. And, and we're going to go from Exodus to, to the Gospel of John, and then we'll finish in 2 Corinthians. Exodus chapter 4, verse 21. This is probably a passage, of a verse that you know and, and have wrestled with, as I have for a long time. Exodus 4.21. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do, do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Alright? Now, go to the book of John chapter 12. And then from John, we'll go to 2 Corinthians. But for now, John chapter 12. And when you find John 12, then find verse 37. And we'll start there. 
middle of verse 36. John 12, beginning in the middle of verse 36. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their hearts and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Second Corinthians chapter four, and we'll begin in verse one. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, that's expository preaching, the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled or hidden, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, I've read these verses to you, kind of tracing this through, and and obviously there's not enough time to do everything that we'd like to do, but we see that God has not only ordained the salvation of those who would believe in Him, but that he has also ordained the hardness of the heart of some who do not believe. Look at Proverbs 16.4 or 1 Peter 2.7 and 8 or even Jude verse 4. This is done in a way, as you see with these passages that we've read, this is done in a way that does not remove the responsibility from man. They're still called to believe. Isaiah still preached. In his ministry, as we saw in our, in our going through Isaiah and the book Gospel of Isaiah on, on Sunday nights. And we'll continue to see that this week. He continued to preach and continued to level the charge for judgment on the shoulders of man. But we see that man is blinded. To which we're going to say, what? <laughs> There's going to be questions that come. I, I suppose the first question is, or maybe a statement. This way, that's not, and what are we, what's, how am I going to finish it? Fair. It's not fair. Isn't God unjust? Paul brings up that very question in, he, in, in Romans chapter 9, verse 20. Is God right in doing this? And you've heard the response, all, uh, I'm sure, many times. Do you really want God to be fair? Or is that really what we're talking about? You really want God to be fair? In the sense that God gives everyone what they deserve. Is that what you want? To which we would all respond, no. (laughs) I don't want God to give me what I deserve because I know what I deserve. Is God fair? Is He just? Maybe another question is developing it like this. But shouldn't mercy be given to all? To which there are two responses. Are you sure that it's not? Think about what we talked about in the book of Joshua, first of all. 400 years, God allowed the sin of the Amorites, the sin of the Canaanites, to come to its full. He said, it's gonna, here's my promise to you, Abraham, but I'm holding off on that promise. Why? Because the sin of the Amorites is not yet full. 
let it go a little while. I'm patient. God is patient. He is demonstrating His patience among you. And is not God a God of mercy and kindness and faithfulness and patience? But the other way to respond to that is when somebody says, shouldn't mercy go to all? Then my question is, doesn't that destroy mercy? Doesn't it destroy grace? If, if it is owed, if, you, if, if there is an obligation, mercy is not mercy, grace is not grace, if it's an obligation, it's, it's justice. Look with me at Romans chapter 11 for a moment. Verse 22. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you kindness, uh, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. And even they, if they did not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that the mercy shown to you they might they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. In response to the question, why is God doing what he does? Paul says he does what he does for his glory. He does what he does for his glory. How do we respond to that? There's a real sense of trepidation and fear and wonder and awe. There's a sense of humility, isn't there? There's a sense that when I think of this, I have been entrusted with the gospel. Why? This, 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 this vessel of clay. Why have I been given the gospel? There's nothing in me that deserves it. Nothing in me that has earned God's mercy. No reason that God would say you. This is the very thing that compels me to evangelism. This is the very thing that constrains me because he has entrusted this amazing message of his mercy to a clay pot. Given us the message of reconciliation. Making us ambassadors to the world. We know that if any man is in Christ, 
He's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And it's not because of my smarts or my persuasive abilities, but because of His grace that He does what He does and gathers in His elect from every corner of the nation, of of the world. To the praise of the glory of His grace. I believe that when you get a sense that the, the heaviness, the weight of this doctrine, that I can't explain. Don't ask me to explain it. Don't ask me to tie it all up in a nice bow and put it into a box. I can just proclaim it. When you get the weight of this, you will be an unstoppable evangelist for Christ. You will go to every tribe and language and nation and people knowing that God has declared that someone from that tribe will be there on the day gathered around the throne in heaven singing praise to Jesus. And you can go through hell and high water to get there. And you can endure every kind of persecution and suffering that you endure and you can do it with joy. Because you know he's going to do something. Remember when I was a kid, I used to love watching Super Friends. Love watching Batman and Robin. You love watching Superman, and there would be some kind of problem that would come up in, in Superman's world. And Clark Kent's walking along, and all of a sudden, you'd see a phone booth, and you knew that he knew what needed to be done. And he'd enter that phone booth and change the world. You knew something was going to happen. There's a sense, and I'm not calling me or you or anybody else Superman, but you know that God does something amazing with normal, everyday people taking us into the world and spreading the message of the gospel to everyone. Why everyone? If some will not believe, that's a question you have to take up with God. You, you, not me. I'm not the editor. I'm just the paper boy. I'm just giving you the news, you know. Same reason that he told Isaiah, go out and preach, but no, they're not going to listen. Okay, I'll go preach. Right? This, 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 this doctrine of sovereignty ultimately is a wonderful blessing. James Boyce said it this way, we find true freedom when we're willing to accept reality as it is, including God's rightful and effective sovereignty over all His creation. And when we allow Him to make us into all that He should have us to be, the matter of God's sovereignty, far from continuing to be an offense to us, can become a wonderful doctrine from which we derive great blessing. Far from being a truth reserved for the mind, the, the doctrine of sovereignty, and this, this is not something for us to sit around and debate. I, mean, I, think, I think one thing that you've taken away from this class is that there comes a point where human ingenuity, human reasoning, you know, we reach a ceiling. We're just not going to get above that until glory. But far from being a truth that's reserved for the mind to sit around and debate, the doctrine of divine sovereignty is a truth for the human heart to embrace. Dr. James Boyce, uh, in his book, I think it's uh, Whatever Happened to Grace, suggested four blessings to the truth of divine sovereignty. I just want to give them to you. He said, first of all, it deepens our worship and reverence for God. Arthur Pink wrote, A God whose will is resisted, whose designs are frustrated, whose purpose is checkmated, possesses no title to deity, and so far from being a fit object of worship, merits naught but contempt. When we see the awesome power of God in the doctrine of sovereignty, we can't help but humbly bow before Him in deep reverence. And when... Someone comes to faith in Christ, be it a small child or an old man or anybody in between, we sit back and say, look what the Lord has done. Wow. 
He's still doing it. He's still saving wretched sinners just like he did with me. It deepens our worship and reverence for God. When, when, we, when we pray, we pray in such a way, oh God, I am desperate. I need you. We'll get into that in a minute. Second, it affords us comfort in the midst of sorrow and suffering and trial and temptation. The Apostle Paul could confidently tell the Romans that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Joseph said to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. It's even bad circumstances in our lives that are not apart from God's knowledge and not outside of his control. When we finish the book of Joshua, we're going to be getting into 1 Peter. And the first four verses of 1 Peter are this mammoth display of the glory of God's grace and mercy in one word, foreknowledge. And Peter in that word declares not only, he's not declaring that events are foreknown, he's declaring that people are. So that even those who were part of the dispersion, who were cast out, who become resident aliens, were, were, were in home away from home. He says, even that is foreknown because he foreknew you. You and all of the attendant circumstances and situations of your life. Even bad circumstances are not apart from God's knowledge and not outside of his control. That's why Peter said, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. The terrors and evil deeds of men cannot thwart the plan of Almighty God. That's, that's why this doctrine and understanding it in this way affords us comfort in the midst of sorrow and suffering and trial and temptation. As I told you earlier, it's what fires our ability to be an evangelist. It's what should compel some of us to go to the, to the nether regions of the world and, and preach the gospel even where it's hard. Number three, it provides a deep sense of security as we trust God. In other words, He is a God who can be trusted. What shall we say to these things? Paul said, if God is for us, who can be against us? The Scripture is replete with the security that is ours and the sovereignty of God. 2 Corinthians 9.8, He is able to make all grace abound. Ephesians 3.20, He is able to help us grow spiritually. Philippians 3.21, He is able to save our bodies. 2 Timothy 1.12, He is able to guard what has been committed to Him. Hebrews 7.25, He is able to save. Jude 24 and 25, He is able to keep you from falling. Sovereignty deepens our worship. It affords us comfort. It gives us a deep sense of security. And four, it bolsters our prayer life. I started to talk about this a moment ago, but One man said, God not only ordains the end, He ordains the means. God has also ordained that prayer is a very significant means to bringing about results in the world. What keeps you praying? What keeps you praying for your loved ones who've denied the gospel? Do you pray? I submit to you that without this doctrine, our prayer life would be ruined, non-existent. To know that God is sovereign and the same way to know that He is loving and merciful and kind, I just become like a little child and crawl up on the lap of my father and trust him to do what is right while I ask him. The sovereign God calls on men to pray and thereby acts to work out his plans for the world and in eternity. You say, "How to explain that, Joe. No way. I have no way of explaining that. Any more than I can explain to you how God said let there be light where there was no light and then light was. I mean, light, light wasn't even a thing before God said light. 
He just invented it. Not even out of thin air, out of nothing. And I want to explain that. No, I can't do that either. But nothing rocks my assurance that God created light. Nothing. I am able to pray with confidence as I pray in accordance with His revealed Word and trust Him. Trust Him. It's the same. I, I pray for you. I pray for our church every week as I preach or somebody's preaching. I pray and know that God will minister to us and bring His Word down and give life to, to the lifeless and, and strength to the weak and, and comfort to those who are grieving. And how can he do all of that in the same time amongst different people hearing the same message, but he does all of those different things? I don't know. But he does. I told you that this is what really provides encouragement to evangelism. Through the years, men have leveled their attacks against the biblical doctrine, and often the front line of attack goes something like this. If God is in control, even over the will of man, then we simply have no reason or basis on which to conduct evangelistic endeavors. Those who make those statements ignore the fact that some of the greatest evangelists to ever walk the earth have been fully convinced of divine sovereignty. The Apostle Paul, Augustine, Edwards, Whitfield, Spurgeon. To insist that the doctrine of divine sovereignty encourages man to be idle in the area of evangelism is just pure ignorance of Scripture. One man said, to say that we are trusting God instead of acting responsibly is sheer laziness and is a distortion of the doctrine of providence. In other words, those who would say, and there are those who say that, "Eh, God God will save whoever He wants to save. I'll just sit back on my laurels and do nothing. Sheer ignorance. See, rather than being an excuse for neglecting evangelism, the divine truth of sovereignty is a motivation to diligence in evangelism. While Paul was in Corinth, he was discouraged because of the opposition that he was receiving from the Jews. The Lord himself appeared to Paul in a vision and said, as is Acts 18, do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent for I am with you. And no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. What was to motivate Paul to faithful diligence in preaching the gospel? God had appointed a number of people to believe, and the means by which they were saved was through the preaching of the gospel. That's how people get saved. They only ever get saved by the preaching of the gospel. See, that's why I might not be able to understand it, but I know that much, and so... When it comes down to it, I preach the gospel because I know that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. And when I get into all the finer parts and the details of what happens here and how does this happen and try to dissect those things, listen, I've told you before, there's not enough up here to be able to explain all of that. But I know it. And so what did Paul do? He continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Even imprisonment was not sufficient to stop the spread of the gospel, and Paul understood that his ministry was being used to fulfill the eternal plan of God. He said this, but the word of God is not chained. Therefore, what? I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. There are those who are elect who are not yet saved. And the key to them getting saved is the preaching of the gospel. And, and, and the messenger can endure all things because he knows that God will bring his elect to himself. The doctrine of divine sovereignty spurs the action on the part of believers. So what do you do? Let me, let me take you one last place and then we'll be done. Um, let me take you to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And verse 12. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, 
even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one, a fragrance of death to death. To another, the fragrance of life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? We're not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak Christ. What did Paul say his message was? Wherever he was going, even, even in, in a situation like this, when when his spirit was not at rest, even though a door was open to him, he would, what he was all about was preaching Christ. The only way that God will reveal his glory to the unbeliever, the only way that he conquers the satanic oppression, the satanic blindness that is in, put on people against the gospel, the only way that he conquers that is through the preaching of the gospel, which leads us to some holy boldness. God's only method for saving people is through the gospel witness, which is set up by the law of God and displays through godly, the godly example of believers. We simply trust Him to do what He said He would do. Not for us, not for our glory, but for His glory. Really what ought to happen is this should lead us to repent where we've not, where we've tried to Oppose what God says, it ought to lead us to some repenting, some humbling. It ought to lead us to a more vigorous commitment to personal evangelism than ever before. Imagine this through the message of Christ, preached by the mouth of a frail witness like you and me, God brings people to Himself. No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. God draws men to Christ through the gospel that we preach. You believe it? If we believe it, if we believe that, we will be much more rigorous and vigorous in our personal evangelism. Just nothing's going to stop us. I'm going to know the gospel well enough, know it clear enough that I can preach it to everyone that I come in contact with, live a holy life, a righteous life, and a bold life in which I preach the gospel to everyone that I come in contact with and know that when someone believes, the praise goes to God, not you. And when someone does not believe, it's not simply because you've, you know, you've done something wrong. You're just not, if you, if you just had a, a greater education, if you just had more of a persuasive way, if you just knew how to win friends and influence people, if your church just had different music, if we just were a more seeker sensitive, if we just had a fog machine and dim lights and whatever it might be, then people would get saved. Right? No. It's the power of the gospel. The power of God. The, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation that wakens people out of their spiritually dead state, draws them, drags them to Christ, that they humble themselves and believe on Him. And that's our hope. Let's pray.